Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is focused on state and local tax developments and trends in the asset and wealth management sector. I'm Kara DeLuca, PwC's SALT Asset and Wealth Management Leader, and today I will be your host. The outcome of the 2020 federal and state elections will have a significant impact on state and local taxation. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the state election results and their impact on the AWM industry with a few of our partners from around the country. Jenny Rada from our Chicago office and Teresa Thompson from our LA office. Thank you both for joining me. Let's get started. With states facing significant budget shortfalls stemming from the health crisis and resulting economic downturn, many states are looking to raise revenue through increasing their individual and or corporate income taxes. During this election cycle, there were three states in particular that required ballot measures for rate changes. Jenny, why don't you start us off with Colorado? Sure, Kara. Colorado had a ballot measure to decrease the tax rate by 0.08%. It passed with 58% of the vote in favor of the reduction. It might be surprising to see a reduction as we typically hear of states having budget deficits, but Colorado actually had a surplus in 2019 and expects to continue the strong economy. The reduction was put on the ballot to allow taxpayers to keep some of the money in their pockets rather than building on the state's surplus. In contrast with Colorado, Arizona just passed with a slight majority of 51% to add a 3.5% surcharge on individuals earning over $250,000 if they are individually filing or married filers earning over $500,000. This would provide a total tax rate of 8% in Arizona, which puts Arizona on the higher end of state tax rates when you compare it to the majority of other states that have individual tax rates in the 4 to 7% range. This increase was put on the ballots as part of Proposition 208, the Invest in Education Act. As the name suggests, the measure was to support funding for public education, which is likely a contributing factor to its passage. Well, that certainly is quite a contrast, Jenny. One other state we want to talk about is Illinois. One measure that was on the state ballot this November was the Illinois Fair Tax. Fair Tax was proposed amendment to the Illinois state constitution to change their state income tax system from a flat tax to a graduated income tax. The current flat tax rate in Illinois is just under 5%, and the proposed graduated rate would increase their top rate to just under 8%. Jenny, can you walk us through how that vote turned out? The fair tax did not pass with 54.5% of the voters voting against the graduated rate. Since the vote did not pass, Illinois is still projecting around $6 billion in deficit, according to the Governor Pritzker and forecasters for the Illinois General Assembly. Illinois is still among the lowest credit ratings for any state in the U.S. as measured by the S&P Global Ratings. So while the Illinois voters prevented the graduated rate, the deficit is still looming and continuing to grow. Currently, Governor Pritzker has stated he will be looking for ways to make budget cuts and has not suggested any tax rate increases, so we'll be watching closely to see if there will be any proposed state increases in the near future. While the Illinois rate did not pass, our clients in the AWM industry will see changes in the amount of tax required to be withheld on behalf of their partners in Colorado due to the state tax increase. Partners can also expect an increase in their Arizona state tax or where the partnership files a composite on behalf of the partners in Arizona. There would be an increase in tax due there as well. This should be taken into account for quarterly and annual payments as well as before making distributions. We'll continue to monitor the impact of other potential rate changes as the states continue to navigate their current economic environment and propose rate changes as a method to reduce their budget deficits. 
Thanks, Jenny. Teresa, let's turn to you. Continuing in the discussion on ballot initiatives in states with deficits, can you touch on California and the activity around there? Yeah, so one big item on the ballot this past November was Prop 15, which would have scaled back Prop 13 protections for commercial and industrial properties greater than 3 million. As a quick sidebar for our listeners, Prop 13 was passed by taxpayers back in 1978, and it prohibits reassessment for property tax purposes unless there's a change in ownership or completion of construction, and it applies to all California real estate and limits the annual property tax increase to 2%. Now, Prop 15 would have carved out commercial and industrial property and revalued to fair market value every three years, quite literally splitting the property tax rule from residential properties, which were not covered under the scope of Prop 15. Voters did not pass Prop 15, and it very narrowly failed by less than 2%. Teresa, given the small margin of Prop 15 failing, is it possible that California will reintroduce the ballot measure in the next few years? That's a great question. Typically, supporters wait a few years before bringing measures back around. However, in the last two election cycles in California, voters saw nearly identical propositions dealing with rent control, both of which failed, so it's not unheard of. The budget deficit as a result of the economic downturn from COVID will put pressure on the state to look for new sources of revenue. However, they may turn their attention away from property tax and instead focus on a wealth tax or increases to the personal income tax rates, since they did draft up assembly bills in the state legislature with language around both these items this past summer. Speaking of California, I know San Francisco has several ballot initiatives as well. Can you briefly walk us through those and what the impacts will be on taxpayers? Sure. Yeah. So San Francisco had four tax related measures on the November ballot, all of which were passed by voters. The most comprehensive being Prop F, which eliminates the lingering payroll expense tax, increases gross receipts tax rates, increases exemptions for certain small businesses, and creates an unlock mechanism to allow the city to spend previously tied up funds due to litigation, which were collected under the commercial rents tax as well as a homelessness gross receipts tax. Also passed was Prop I, which increased the real estate transfer tax rate on sales and leases greater than 35 years from 2.5% to 5.5% on transactions of 10 million to 25 million. And then for transactions greater than 25 million, the rate was increased from 3% to 6%. Another ballot initiative that passed was Prop L, which is the overpaid executive tax, or it was formerly known as the CEO tax, and this passed with a 65% approval. This authorizes an additional tax of 0.1% to 0.6% of gross receipts, or 0.4% to 2.4% on payroll expenses for administrative offices, um, for businesses in which the highest paid managerial employee or partner earns more than 100 times the median compensation of San Francisco-based employees. Now, those rates will scale up for every 100, 200, or 300 times the highest comp individual is over the median SF employee base, all the way up to 600 times, and that's how you get that 0.6% rate. And then last but not least, 
Any San Francisco land or property owner is probably familiar with Prop J. This changed the existing parcel tax that was passed back in 2018, and it changed the rate from 320 to 288 per parcel, and it's annually adjusted now for inflation. Now, there are quite a few other nuances and details layered into each of these, but very high level, we're looking at some pretty significant San Francisco business tax changes starting in January of 2021, and then continuing into 2022 when the overpaid executive tax kicks in. Our AWM clients in San Francisco should work with their engagement teams to ensure they understand the impact of all of these changes on their tax liabilities each year, and to ensure proper estimated payments are made and cash is on hand for those payments. Well, there's certainly a lot going on in California. Thanks for that, Teresa. I think one more thing worth noting before we go. On November 10th, the Treasury and IRS announced proposed regulations addressing states that are exploring entity-level taxes for pass-through entities. That's right, Kara. Notice 2020-75 was released to provide certainty that income tax payments made by partnerships and S-Corps are deductible without being subject to the SALT cap that was imposed by the 2017 reform. There are a handful of states that have already offered this option, and this will be certainly opening the door to many more states considering this. That's true, Jenny. I think about 14 jurisdictions have explored a pass-through entity tax, and half have passed legislation in the last couple of years to enact either a mandatory or elective pass-through entity tax regime. This will likely bring out some interesting planning opportunities and as always, more questions for our clients. I think those are two really great points from all you guys and I really appreciate it. Jenny, Teresa, thanks for joining us for today's discussion. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us for this episode. Make sure you visit PwC's Tax Readiness website where you can find our webcasts, sign up for PwC Tax Insights and subscribe to more episodes. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.